Hello and welcome to episode 23 of The Toth Zone, a podcast about how an obsession with music gives us a reason to live and can also wreck our lives. I'm your host, James Toth. Something a little different today, we have our very first guest. I'd like to introduce you to my old friend and former touring partner, bandmate, and musical collaborator, Heidi Deal, who in addition to being a published author, is also a filmmaker, musician, and teacher. Heidi published her debut novel, Lifelines, in 2019, to a tremendous amount of well-deserved acclaim. It was named a Best Book of the Summer by O Magazine, Cosmopolitan, Nylon, and the Minneapolis Star Tribune and author George Saunders called it a graceful, attentive, and beautiful debut. Lifelines is a story about secrets, art, and reckoning with the burden of the past, but it's also about family, and not just the families into which we are born, but also the families we create, such as bands. Now, the reason I wanted to have Heidi on the show as the very first guest on the Toth Zone aside from the fact that she's a delightful person and I always enjoy gabbing with her, is to discuss her experiences on tour and how those experiences inform the parts of her book that revolve around a young psychedelic drone band on the road, some of which were based on our travels together many years ago, and all of which were so accurate they gave me flashbacks. Heidi and I spent a lot of time together on tour, and she was a crucial and core member of my group Wooden Wand and the Vanishing Voice, and I thought she could provide some perspective on what it was like being a member of a young band on tour in the first decade of the new millennium. So without further ado, my friend, Heidi Deal. Heidi, welcome to the Toth Zone. Thank you. It's great to be you here. Are the show's, you are the show's first guest. It's an honor. <laughs> so uh, it's an honor to have you. Um, obvious question, first of all, is how, how are you? Uh, have you gotten a vaccine? How are things? Um, I'm fine. I have not been vaccinated yet. I'm teaching, but I teach online. And so I'm not eligible yet. But I'm lucky that I can still be doing my job from home. And all of that. How yeah. are you? I'm okay. Uh, I'm also not vaccinated yet. Although my wife, uh, Leah, has been vaccinated. She has the first shot. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I think given my line of work, I think I'm like in group like 56, like with people in the monasteries and solitary confinement. So I'm not, I'm not really holding my breath, but uh, hopefully sooner than later. So we can get back to something like normal. So I do want to discuss your experiences uh, in the DIY touring scene, which are many, but I first wanted to congratulate you on this fantastic book. Thank you. Um, Thanks for reading it. Oh, I, I actually read it one and a half times. I wanted to refresh <laughs> my memory. So I reread some of it. Uh, we had a recent poll question on this podcast about the worst depiction of rock and roll uh, or music in general in a fictional TV or a show or movie. But the other side of that is the accurate depictions. And I don't think I've read a book uh, that better or more authentically gets at what it's like to be like a young DIY band on tour with all the associated like minutia, you know, those mundane sort of arguments uh, than your book. So I think that was really well done. So I guess my first question is, did you know all those years ago that you were doing a kind of field research for the book? I mean, I remember you were writing all the time, but I didn't know. Well, we all were writing all the time because we were keeping that collective tour diary, which is a writing experience unlike any other, I think, than I, that I've had. Um, and I hope we talk about that 
maybe later, but yeah, I didn't know that I was, I think in my dreams, I would have thought I would one day, you know, write a book about this, but I was so far from writing in any kind of serious way. And, um, so lost in a certain sense. So I don't, I don't know. I mean, may, maybe I was thinking I'm keeping these notes because at some point I'll be ready to come back to them. But I think just the experience of playing in that band and being with the people in that band, including you, um, it was so narrative. We were so obsessed with the story we were telling and we were documenting it. We were keeping a tour diary. We were doing video all the time, just shooting video all the time. And it felt... I guess I wanted that experience of constructing narratives in my life. I wanted to be writing in a more serious way and I was getting it through the band. If that makes, I don't know if that makes sense, but. No, that makes perfect sense. I, I can definitely relate to that too. There was, there was this feeling that we, we, we were documenting this thing and it was only in, in hindsight, I think that you can really appreciate, you know, how unique some of those experiences actually were. And I'm actually going to skip ahead because you mentioned the tour diary, and I did want to bring up this tour diary. Um, so I mentioned in an earlier episode that touring with someone is like concentrating five years of friendship into just a few weeks. Um, and I remember, you know, like we talked about this running tour diary, and I think one of the interesting things about it is one of us had the idea to write it as a single entity <laughs> and not credit ourselves individually so that we could, I guess, be more objective. So years later... When I reread it, I couldn't tell what you wrote from what I wrote from what Lucas wrote. And obviously, we're all very different people and we have different writing styles, etc. But at a certain point in this very long Word document, I stopped recognizing my own authorial voice, which is weird. Mm -hmm. So what is it about these close quarters that creates this sort of tribalism like, or blurring of individuals? Or does it do that? Yeah, that's a really good question. I just want to note for your listeners to make clear that the tour diary, we were, there were anonymous entries, but we were also using XX to describe right. every, everybody's name was an X. And so right. it was, it was a space to be sort of free with your feelings. I don't think it wasn't, we weren't being mean to each other, but it, there was tension at times. And it was, um, it was, it was uh, all the details were there. Um, but your question was, oh, why is why do bands take on this kind of cult-like feeling where so intense and your sort of your memories, <clears throat> excuse me, become it's like the group. I think our writing seems so similar because we were just we were talking about the same things all the time and experiencing them and really obsessed with rehashing everything in the car the next day and analyzing everything. So I don't know. You've done so much more of this than I have at this point. So you must, you've experienced this with lots of different groups of musicians. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, I, I haven't had any other group tour diaries. I'll say that. That was something I think we, we can claim. Yeah. Well, you mentioned tension and, and early in the book, um, I think it's Margot or Louise says that, uh, quote, I'm quoting the book here, the, the worse they got along, the better it sounded. And much later in the book, and you do this a lot, you come back to things, I think has to do with the title too, there's, there's a lot of overlapping. Uh, Dieter seems to confirm this when he says, with bands, the music gets better when you all hate each other, which is sort of the more German way of putting that, I think. <laughs> so what is it about the tension that produces transcendent music, or is that a, a myth, a dangerous myth? Mm. 
Well, maybe it is a dangerous myth. I sort of, I kind of remember somebody saying that in the band in, in the car one day, like the days where we struggle more and we have to, we sort of, you feel like you have something to express at the end of the day when you, when you perform and it's more, you've earned it somehow. I don't think it's helped. I don't think that's healthy necessarily to think if you all hate each other and, and the more tense you are, the better the music is going to sound. No, that is not, that's not, a, <laughs> it's not something I would recommend. I wouldn't strive for that, but maybe, right. maybe yeah. it's unavoidable. It could be just one of those tropes, like the starving artist thing, or like those bands that, that burn out really fast, but their flame burns very brightly. Well, but again, these are all, these are all sort of tropes and built into the rock and roll mythology and stuff. So how did we come to play together? Because my memory is generally pretty bad, but I remember meeting you. And then next thing I knew we were like touring Europe and the United States together. I mean, that was kind of a leap of faith for all of us. Well, for you, I mean, for me, that I I should I need to thank you because you are the whole reason that I could write about any of this stuff in this book is because you invited me to join your band. Um, uh, yes, I remember it. I remember it exactly when it happened. It was in two thousand three. I was hanging out with Jarvis, and he said, "You have to meet my friend James." we're doing this band together now. And I met you on the sidewalk and said, hello. And you said, do you want to come with us? We're going to this festival in Minneapolis, the Steel Festival. Right, right. Be in our band. And you didn't know me. You didn't, you'd never, I mean, you were doing this as a favor to Jarvis, I guess, but it was, that's where it all began. But wow. it, it, it kept going. I mean, it like tumbled. You just kept saying, yeah, you know, then I was tagging along or whatever. So, well, yeah, when the band started, there were like 11 or 12 people and people fell away, leaving yeah. like a core of five or six, depending on what, what tour we were on. Right. I, I, there's a lot in the book that you couldn't have possibly experienced that that to me is is uh, just as vivid and convincing. Like, obviously, you weren't around for the, the Bader-Meinhof bombings in Munich, the Olympics. And uh certain aspects of post-war German history. So how much research uh, went into this book? I mean, I'm guessing a lot. Yeah, a lot. And thank you. Um, a lot. I was writing it for a lot of years. And um, yeah, I was reading and watching things on YouTube and watching documentaries and listening to records, of course. And that to me was what was so fun about it. it was hard, but what was so fun was just getting to think about all this stuff that I'm fascinated by for a long time. Cause writing a book is such a long slog. And so you have to, you know, find things you're obsessed with and obsess about them <laughs> in a room by yourself for a long time. <laughs> well, speaking of the German stuff, I've, I've read uh, probably an embarrassing amount of literature about Krautrock. Uh, and I always remember that people like Rodelius and Edgar Frosa and, and Conrad Schnitzler, they always talked about the genesis of Krautrock being a, a, a means of not only reckoning with the past, but of dismantling it mm-hmm. and building something new on top of their history, the break with the Schlager music and the music of their parents. And it seems like British and American kids uh, seem all too happy to return to those roots, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Those guys like Dieter in the book couldn't do that, right? I mean, they, they were unable to, to build on those things because they were ashamed of them. Yeah. 
yeah, it was so deeply terrible that I don't, it, it required this. That was what was so fascinating to me in doing the research and writing this book was that it really required this break with history and with culture. It's interesting, I'm thinking now about what you're saying and I wonder um, in this country and in the world, but in this country right now, we're having such a reckoning with the past sure. and I wonder as time goes on, if that will, you know, change. I'm all for this. I love nostalgia and I love, I love, <laughs> I love nostalgia, but I wonder if kind of the, the political climate now and that will continue to develop will change the way we feel. Right. I mean, the Holocaust is just so, it's just so enormously terrible that it, it seems it just requires this absolute rejection, which it, it does. Uh, how much of the how much of the music did you go back and listen to while you were writing this? I mean, you go really deep with, you know, Amandul and Cosmic Jokers. I mean, you go really deep, and I think a lot of the the heads, so to speak, will appreciate that stuff. But um, I can't write when music's playing, especially not music with lyrics. Or were you were you like deep into this stuff when you were writing, or was it like part of the research? Um. Yeah, I don't listen. Yeah, it was definitely it was definitely in the research. I was it was an excuse to just go really deep and freak out and get nerdy about it. But um, I, I was listening a little when I was writing just to kind of like get the flavor. But but maybe more when I was drafting. I find it distracting to listen to music most of the time when I'm writing. And so yeah, same. Yeah. It's more just yeah. like the scaffolding around my life. <laughs> I like that. That's well, <laughs> that's well put. Yeah. Um, I relate strongly to Keith. <laughs> I relate to Keith as a pedantic, petulant music freak in his 20s with bad nutritional habits. Um, it's funny. A few, few years ago, I was in a band and uh, I was kind of joking to my wife that the man had all the archetypes. I was like, oh, man, we've got peanut allergy guy. We've got recovering addict guy. We've got vegan guy. And I was like, who am I? And without missing a beat, she said, you're uptight control freak guy. You know, you you mentioned that uh, for the characters of Keith and Joel in the book, music was their constant frame for understanding. And obviously, I relate to this, too. I mean, the whole first season of my podcast is basically about that. Do you agree that especially when you're young and impressionable, that music can be a way of, of viewing the world? I mean, I know you and I both had like a punk rock background and probably a lot of our first exposure to politics was through punk and stuff like that. Yeah, for sure. And I'll just say about the character of Keith, I hope you um, I hope you read him as a complex character. And if you see any reflection of yourself, I hope you see his very good qualities as well as a character. And, and one of the things, I mean, the character of Keith, and that was the role you played and others played in, in that band for me was just exposing me to so much music and that I, I really got an education in the van of just sitting and listening and talking about music all day. It was really thrilling for me. And yeah, that at, at that time it was the frame for understanding, but sure. people around me now much older, but that's, that's the way it, that's the way people the people that are close to me, at least a lot of them are making, still making sense of the world in that way. I'm sure you are. But yeah, I do love the smallness of the thinking of the band. I mean, it's so, it so captures a band, like the, the arguments over these meaningless things. And I, I love, I, I hate to keep quoting your book at you. I like as a songwriter, I hate when people throw, like everything's autobiography and I realize mm -hmm. it's fiction, but I love the, I have good news. I downloaded some Krautrock jams to prepare us for meeting the German guy. <laughs> 
I, that's, <laughs> that's just, I mean, my face was red when I read that because I probably said something similar to that. Like they hear the name Dieter and immediately assume it's Dieter from Cluster. I really love that. And I, I love those details about the arguments over like how to end a set of improvisational jams in front of like 12 people, like these very important conversations. I think you really get at that. And I think it's really, really great. Another thing I wanted to bring up from the book is Margot, the character of Margot discussing the music says, um, we're improvising mom. It's like this perfect fleeting world when we finally get it right. I don't think I've heard a better summation of what it's like to improv on stage, you know, fearlessly, because you're, you're aiming for those few minutes of transcendence when you forget you're even playing, like you're, you're touching an instrument and sounds coming and you're not really aware of the connection between your hands and your ears and you hope the audience goes along with you. But so do you still have occasions to play uh, in an improvisational context? I know writing a book, like you said, takes over your life and I, I know that for sure, but do you still play improv music? Not right now. Sure. Yeah. I think I will again, yeah. but, but not really right now. It's been a while. And I miss it. I really, I really miss also collaborating and getting to to be working with other people on the same thing. Is that's so that's so great, and you don't get that as a writer. So I'm sure you know it's so solitary. Um, it is, yeah, yeah. And I imagine we've all had a lot enough solitary time. Well, this now, past yes, year, like bring know. on the improvising <laughs> noise bands. <laughs> right. Seven on a bill, no problem. I'm ready. You know. No, there, you say. Margot loved being on the road. She liked the compressed acquaintance with each place. And I think this too is really well put. Uh, it was a running joke back in the day. Anytime I'd return from tour and I'd been out West, my mother-in-law would say, how was the space needle? Because the first time she asked me and I was like, no, we don't see this. We are the red roof in, you know, we see like this club that <laughs> looks like anywhere. And it just became this thing that I'd never seen the space. So every time I went to Seattle, I was like, how was the space needle? But your book touches on the notion of the desire path. Now, isn't there something of a desire path aspect to touring the way we did or the way we do? Like you see the real shit. You don't see the space needle. You have this, like you say, a compressed acquaintance with a place. And a very particular kind of acquaintance with a place too. Yeah. So yeah, I hadn't thought of that about the desire lines, but that is, that makes a lot of sense. Um, or yeah, I mean, I, I had, but I haven't, you're, you're you're voicing something that is nice to hear. Um, yeah, I'm just thinking about how that compressed acquaintance and how I used to have a, a saying about being on tour, lunatics reveal themselves, which... I remember that. <laughs> and I don't know. I don't know if this is still your experience. I'm curious, actually, if that was because we were just these, these maniacs ourselves who were in our early 20s and that we were and we we had this this collective mythology that we just attracted lunatics or if it's something about touring that people want to confide in you no i think it's something about touring for sure i do think that we sort of we sort of welcomed that and maybe encouraged that um, <laughs> to a larger extent than a lot of bands but uh but i do think it is it is it is sort of a you know a refuge for misfits in a lot of ways and that's one of the, the things i think is still beautiful about it even coming from the punk scene and into the noise scene and any kind of subculture it does seem to draw out people who are, who don't really belong in other places mm -hmm. and i think when people saw us they thought you know correctly or incorrectly like these are these this is my tribe you know and i i think that's something but yes lunatics do reveal themselves which if you're a writer 
that's all you want. You, you, you're just, you should be typing into the tour diary anonymously. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll say like refreshingly, uh, the freak folk improv DIY jam band scene, whatever you want to call it reductively, where we orbited was relatively co-ed in comparison to a lot of other scenes, but obviously still heavily male dominated. I do think it would be a missed opportunity to not ask you, um, not that I'm reducing you to one of the two girls in the band or whatever, but how, how did it feel to be a woman on tour during this time? Yeah, that's a good question. That is certainly the book is fiction <laughs> and the character of Margot is not me. She's different from me in a lot of key ways, but she's, she is, her experiences are similar to, to me. And it was, I mean, in the band, I felt great and I felt, you know, it was, I wasn't that it felt very equal. It felt really equitable always to me in the band. Um, but certainly people, there were some, some of the lines in the book that people sort of say disparagingly to Margot, <laughs> like you play such cute little melodies, or I love, I love the, the female sense of rhythm. Those are verbatim things that men said. Um, but I was, you know, I was in a relationship while I was in that band with Jarvis and I was really sensitive <laughs> about, about so I was really sensitive about being there just because I was his girlfriend. <laughs> but I just told the story of how I basically just rolled into the band when I met you on the sidewalk for right. that reason. So I was like always really sensitive about wanting to kind of just seem very independent in the way that we projected ourselves because I wanted to be taken seriously, even though it's like, what am I doing? I'm an improvising noise musician. (laughs) What were any of us doing? (laughs) You know, I mean, that you just as much right to be there as anyone. And, and like I said, a lot of people fell away. If you look at the first wooden wand record, there's like 13 people on there. And, you know, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have like, it's, it's kind of like the military in that way. Like if you can survive this rigorous basic training, it's like, all right, we're going to Belgium. Let's go, you know? And, and, and there were shows where you weren't present and I I could hear on the tapes that there was a, a gaping hole. And I, I would say that about anybody in that band. I mean, it did become over time, this thing where you, you just, you, you could expect to hear a person's sound, a certain signature. Of course, we had a lot of our own strange invented instruments. So it's like, where's the rabbit mousephone? <laughs> I don't hear it on, on the tape, you know, these weird things. But I, I do think that that was, it was more than the sum of its parts, which I think the best bands are. Do you think touring will ever return to the way it was pre-pandemic? I really wonder. It's, it's so much on my mind because, you know, Steve um, is, he's, he has not toured for the last year and that's how he makes his living. And so it's been really different in our household because he's just been home totally for the last year, which I'm sure you're experiencing in your household too. It's really yeah. different. And I, I wonder if, I don't know, we all get vaccinated. There's out, outdoor, we could be doing outdoor concerts this summer, it seems like. Sure. What do you think? I'm as you might recall, I'm a half empty kind of guy, you know, expect the worst hope for the best. And I just I worry that even if everyone's, you know, has the vaccine, a lot of the venues that we would have played are, are not going to be operational because of economics and a lot of places have to close down. And, yeah. and I also I also fear a bottleneck type situation where it's like September ready to go on tour. We've got 
we're ready. And every band in America is going to be hitting the interstate at the same time. Yeah. Right. I couldn't hear. So there's the the glut. So I I don't know. I mean, like I said, I'd I'd rather remain cautiously optimistic, but um, yeah, I think it's going to change. And I think I really resisted making the, the second season of the podcast, like tour life, but now I've sort of changed my mind because if the first season commemorates like what it was like to like line up at tower records at midnight to buy some dumb CD, right? Like the second season for better or worse might, you know, might be more historical than topical at some point. Wow. I, I worry. I don't know. Maybe that's a bummer. I'm sorry. It'll. It's going to come back. I mean, it, it might. It might be a rolling, slow rolling start, but <laughs> it's going to come back. I believe it. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll end on. We'll end on a good note then. Um, are you uh, working on anything right now, writing uh, or otherwise? Yeah, I'm working on another novel that is um, pretty different it's different in scope much shorter scope and it's um yeah contained to one time and place so it's it's been good and hard to to try I mean the first book was really hard also but to try to do something of a much smaller scope great yeah well oh I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it and thanks it's been so fun reconnecting with you today i mean we'll 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 chat more you know off the podcast but um i really do appreciate your time and uh catching up with you heidi deal uh the book lifelines published by houghton mifflin you can find it everywhere and i highly highly recommend it thanks for having me and thanks for reading talking about my book and our tour life together oh my pleasure thanks heidi I want to thank Heidi for taking the time to talk to me. Again, the book is Lifelines, published by Houghton Mifflin. If you're into the stuff we discuss on this show, or if you just love captivating, vivid, smart storytelling, I really think you'll love it. And in keeping with the episode's theme of friends, all of my musical recommendations this week are new albums by friends of mine. Since we just spoke to Heidi, I want to seg to talk about another former bandmate of mine, Janet Simpson who has been getting some rave reviews for her new album, Safe Distance. Janet and I played together for several years and toured together a bunch, and she was by no coincidence a chief contributor to most of my favorite Wooden Wand records. She also taught me a lot about singing. Uh, When I was asked to do a tour a few years ago and was told I could only afford to bring one person, I brought Janet, if that tells you anything. I've always been a fan of Janet's work with her band's teen getaway, Delicate Cutters, and Timber with the equally phenomenal guitarist and songwriter Will Stewart. But I feel like with this new one, Janet's made the record she's been wanting to make for a long time. It's kind of like one of those all-stars-are-aligned sort of records. Like the songwriting, the playing, the atmosphere, everything is just really good. Uh, Janet Simpson, Safe Distance, out now on Cornelius Chapel Records. The new album by New Bums, the duo of Donovan Quinn and Ben Chasney, has been in constant rotation here. Uh, Ben and Donovan both have inspired me a great deal over the years. We've been friends, and I think I like this new one uh, even more than their last one, which I really love, too. The new one's called Last Time I Saw Grace, and it's out on Drag City. It's great songwriting, great vibe. Kind of splits the difference between, like, the devilish surrealism of Robin Hitchcock, the barroom mysticism of Paul Westerberg, and the gauzy glam jangle of Nicky Sutton. Definitely get it. Also, be sure to pick up guitarist Matt Rollins' new double album, The Dreaming Bridge, on Feeding Tube. Highly recommended to fans of modernist, adventurous, borderless acoustic guitar music. 
The new one by Sunburned Hand of the Man on the greatest label in the world, Three Lobed, is also expectedly great. Over on Bandcamp, the latest EP by the prolific, and if I'm calling someone prolific, believe me, I mean it, Josh Doss is an unclassifiable and frankly shocking release by this reliably great songwriter. Uh, Josh releases a lot of material, and all of it's good, whether he's in a sort of Neil Young bag or doing a kind of raw, damaged psych pop, but this latest EP is like Jandek gone minimal wave. Really insane and really good. Don't sleep on this guy, because someday someone's going to release some crazy, lavish, archival box set of his dozens of self-released records and experiments, and you'll want to be able to say you were in on the ground floor. Uh, joshdoss.bandcamp.com Lastly, Morgan Enos's Other Houses project just released a digital single on Bandcamp that combines golden age 90s indie, I think like Guided by Voices and Wowie Zowie era pavement, with this sort of studio rat, highly detailed ELO Todd Rundgren loner genius bent. It's pretty irresistible. You can find it at finalhouse.bandcamp.com. That's all for now. Uh, next week, we'll be revealing the results of our most recent poll question, which, if you missed it, was What's the worst song by your favorite artist or band? And the bonus question What's a song you like by an artist you dislike? You can find me on Twitter at Jimmy Jack Toth and on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Toth Zone. If you're not already a patron, please do consider pledging. Tiers begin at only $5 a month and earn you lots of cool stuff including early access to each new episode of The Toth Zone. You can also reach me at thetothzone at outlook.com. Thanks, as always, for hanging out. See you next time. This is The Toth Zone. The Toth Zone.